0: Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We're going to be in verses 32 through 37. We are continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and this morning we come to the end of Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, It's been a great time of learning and encouragement as we consider this great prophecy of our Lord, uh, and I believe this morning will be the same. And this is a pretty... uh, in God's providence is kind of humorous. The, the thrust of this text is stay awake, and it's very hot in here, and I'm quite tired, and I'm sure some of you are, so stay awake. Uh, but this morning, we, we come to a hinge point in the Olivet Discourse. In verses 2 through 31, Jesus has been focused on the time leading up to and immediately following the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But now, a new subject appears in the discourse. In verse 32, our Lord transitions to a new topic. And that topic is his bodily return at the end of history. And he tells his disciples in all ages that his return will be unexpected. He says plainly that nobody can know when he will return in glory and judgment. But he does indeed affirm that he will come again, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. And in light of that, Our Lord exhorts his people to watchfulness in his closing words. As I said already, he tells us to stay awake. He commands us to live always in expectation and anticipation of his coming again. He commands us to live in such a way that if he were to return tomorrow, we would be prepared and unashamed to see him come. Now, if I could summarize the text, uh, I I would put it this way. Our Lord is telling us, You don't know when I'm coming, so live always as to be prepared for my coming. We are to live in the hope and expectation that one day Jesus will return for his church, and so we are to live so as to be unashamed when he comes. We are to live in such a way that we are prepared to meet him. That is the thrust of this text, and I hope to expound on that and a couple of other things and be a blessing to you all this morning as we look to the word of God together. With that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the scriptures, there are untold treasures. In your word, you reveal glory to us. You teach us about yourself and your will and your ways. But God, we confess that we are too spiritually dull to receive even the most glorious truth without your help. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would teach us this morning. Open our eyes, ears, Hearts and minds to receive your word with all faith and love. Grant, God, that we would understand your word, and with that understanding, that we would love, worship, revere, and obey you. Grant to us this morning a sight of our Lord Jesus in the text today, that we might be blessed and changed. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. As I said in the introduction, Our passage this morning introduces a new subject. Verse 32 says, But concerning that day or that hour. Uh, This is the transition text in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. And and I want to prove to you that our Lord is no longer speaking of the destruction of the temple, but has now begun to speak about his bodily return at the end of the age. I want to prove that to you. I don't want you to take my word for it. Uh, The first thing I want to address is why Jesus would begin to speak of his return At this point in the discourse. Why? Now, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples ask about the return of Christ. In Matthew 24, verse 3, they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the sign of your coming and the end of the age. In Matthew's account, the disciples reveal that they believe the destruction of the temple would coincide with the end of the age or the end of history and the return of Christ, right? His coming, his parousia at the end of the age. Now, why would they think that? Why would they associate the destruction of the temple with the return of Christ at the end of history? Well, history helps us with this a little bit. Uh, you see, common Jewish belief of the time, and you could read rabbis from around that first century and before saying this, uh, common Jewish belief was that the temple would last until the end of the world, so when the disciples asked about the temple's destruction that Jesus had just prophesied, I think it's pretty safe to assume that they believed the end of time would come when the temple was destroyed. Again, Matthew's parallel records them asking about the end of the age alongside the destruction of the temple. Uh, so clearly, at least I think it's clear, the disciples associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the world. And so it makes sense that Jesus, in this discourse about the destruction of the temple, would address uh, the end of the world. He would address his second coming. Uh, though in reality, the two are not immediately related. In the minds of the disciples, they were. And so Jesus now begins to speak about his return, I think, so as to correct their misunderstanding. Now, why doesn't Mark record the disciples' question about the end of the age? If you read Mark, I think, I believe it's verse 4, um, Mark 13:4. they don't ask about the end of the age. Why? I don't know. I don't know why Mark doesn't record that. Only God knows. It's possible that Matthew was written first and Mark is giving a shorter summary. Uh, But regardless, we know that the disciples did indeed ask about the return of Christ at the end of the age. When we harmonize the accounts all together, we know that they did ask about that. And I believe that Mark's own record bears enough evidence to show by itself that Jesus has actually switched to that topic. right? The end of the age. And I want to show you some of that evidence now that Jesus has switched topics. i got five pieces of evidence for you. First, verse 31 seems to be a conclusion, doesn't it? In verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's finality to these words, right? There's a finality to them. And such finality fits if Jesus has ceased speaking of one topic and is about to move on to another. If verses 32 through 37 continue the same topic, the destruction of the temple, then we would expect the kind of saying in verse 31 to be at the end of the discourse, I think. So again, there's finality in verse 31. I think that means he's done with one topic and he's moving on to another. A second piece of evidence, and this is big for me. Verse 32 begins with the phrase, but concerning. But concerning. In Greek, the phrase is peridei. Uh, now, this is a common phrase in New Testament Greek that signals a switch in subjects. Jesus does this in Mark's gospel, actually. In Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus is addressing the Sadducees and their question about um, marriage and, um, and the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus says, and as for the dead being raised. So Jesus gives some introductory remarks to them saying, you don't know the Bible and you don't believe the Bible. And as for the dead being raised, well, the phrase there is peri-day at the beginning of that sentence. It signals that Jesus has switched subjects from rebuking them for not knowing the scriptures to, but now about your question. And he begins to answer them. We see this phrase, this but concerning or now concerning, this peri-day Greek phrase, signaling a subject change in the Apostle Paul's writings. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a number of topics. If you're very familiar with that letter, Paul talks about a lot of stuff. We, we talked about one of them uh, this morning. We talked about head coverings in the, uh, in the Sunday school class. But we read in 1 Corinthians 7.1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, peri-day. Now concerning the matters. 1 Corinthians 7.25, Now concerning the betrothed. 1 Corinthians 8.1, Now concerning food offered to idols. First Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12.1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Right? Paul also does this in his letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, now concerning brotherly love, chapter 5, verse 1, now concerning the times and seasons. And again, in 2 second, in second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of this constant and common use of the phrase, I think it's fair to say that a change in topic has occurred here in Mark's gospel. again, that's how the phrase is used. Jesus says, but concerning that day and that hour. So Jesus has begun to speak of something other than the destruction of the temple. Just as Paul uses that phrase to signal a subject change in his letters, I believe Jesus is doing that here. That was very important for me uh, to believe what I'm telling you. That was very important. Uh, A third piece of evidence for this. In verses 5 through 31, the first section of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus refers to a plurality of days, doesn't he? Verses 17, 19, 20, and 24, in those days, in those days, in those days. But in verse 32, there seems to be a shift. Jesus now begins to speak about that day or that hour. He's now speaking of a singular day and time and not a general period of time. So this kind of singular day language is often used in the Bible to refer to the return of Christ. The day, the great day, that day, and that hour are all used in scriptures to refer to the end of history and the consummation of all things at Christ's return. And again, and here in verse 32, Jesus has begun to speak of a single day. So I believe that Jesus is talking about capital D, that day. A fourth piece of evidence here. Uh, Notice the opportunity for flight in the discourse in verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation, Run. Go, go to the hills of Judea, the mountains of Judea, Judea, run away. You could run from what Jesus has been talking about. But here in verses 32 through 37, there is a sudden and unannounced day that cannot be escaped. You can't run from this one. He just comes, and that's it. So again, it seems there's a difference in subjects. And then lastly, in verses 5 through 31, there are signs, aren't they? There are signs they're supposed to see. Jesus is prophesying things that are going to happen. Verse 29 even says, So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So there were signs in verses 5 through 31 that they were supposed to recognize concerning the initial subject of the discourse. But are there any signs in verses 32 through 37? Not a one. Jesus says, you don't know when it's going to happen. So there's a signless event in the first half of the discourse, and then here at the end, there, rather, sorry, there are signs in the first half, and now there is a signless event. So I don't think that they're the same thing. In light of all of these things, and thank you for bearing with me, these are important, though. In light of all these things, I believe we are more than justified in seeing a transition from one subject to another, even without using Matthew's gospel. I think it's in Mark itself. But it does fit perfectly with Matthew's opening verses, in his account of the Olivet Discourse, where the disciples ask about Jesus' coming at the end of the age. That's what Jesus has begun to spoke about here, or speak about here, and I just wanted to prove that to you. We are talking about the second coming of Christ. Or rather, we should say more properly, the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus begins to speak about his return, he first mentions, first thing he says, the unknowableness of it. I made up a word. The unknowableness of the return. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Jesus says that no one knows. No, No angel, no men, and at least at that point in time, not even Jesus himself knew when he would return. Only God knew. Only God knows when Jesus will come. Now, this poses a problem for some. I can see it on some of your faces. This poses a great problem for some. Many people read this and they say, how is Jesus God if he doesn't know something? Just real quick, anyone, has anyone ever thought that when you read this text? How does he not know something if he's God? I thought, I've asked that question many times. And that's a question worth answering. So I want to answer that. And I'll tell you at the, at the front, and this answer is, is, is fairly simple if you believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible... And don't believe that you have to be able to reason everything out in your own finite mind. But you just believe what is revealed in the text. The answer is fairly simple. But it is very, very mysterious. If you're someone who says, I only believe what I can fully understand down to the bottom. Then you can't believe what I'm getting ready to tell you. But if you say, we live by revealed truth. And whatever God has said, even if I cannot comprehend it, is the truth. Then this answer is fairly simple, but very mysterious. The answer is easy to say, but it is impossible to fully search out and understand completely. We're going to talk about the hypostatic union of Christ here for a minute. That's, there's your $5 theology phrase. That just means the two natures in one person. This is one of the great mysteries of the faith. This and the Trinity are the two great mysteries of the faith. You see, as we often confess, Jesus is truly God and truly man at the exact same time. And he has been so ever since he took on flesh for us and for our salvation at the Incarnation. The two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, are bound together in the one person of Jesus Christ. In the Incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took a true and full human nature to himself. And these natures have been brought together in such a way That neither of them are blended, mixed, or confused with one another. And yet, they still abide in the one person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So then we confess Jesus Christ is one person with two natures. And he's the only person with two natures. The divine nature is unchanged. Please hear me. They aren't mixed, blended, or confused. The divine nature is unchanged. Why? Because God is immutable. God says explicitly, I am the Lord and I do not change. The divine nature remains unchanged. And the human nature remains truly human and not some kind of demigod. Jesus isn't Hercules. He's not some half-God, half-human hybrid. If that were the case and the two natures were blended in some way, then Jesus would not be able to be a mediator for human beings, would he? Because he wouldn't be one like us. But he must be human in every way that we are. Only a man can make atonement for sinful men. Only a man can represent men in covenant before God. This is why the Son of God had to take a human nature to himself. And it must remain truly human just like ours. And that's why the Bible teaches that Jesus is our substitute. He is our mediator and he is our covenant head and therefore is truly human as we are with, while also being God. This is one of the deep things of our faith that we cannot explain, but we do affirm. That's actually all we can do. Me and, me and Stephen and Dave were talking about this earlier. This is one of the things of our faith that we cannot fully explain, but we can only affirm and we affirm it because the word of God says so. We affirm it because God has spoken. The Bible affirms the true divinity of Christ. The Bible says Jesus is God. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a statement. Our great God and Savior. And the Bible also affirms that Jesus is truly human. I won't give you proof texts for this. Just hear me out. He was born, lived, ate, slept, suffered, wept, bled, and died for our sins. Only a true human can do those things. Only a true human can do those things. So then in light of this, we must draw a conclusion from the text in Mark. At least at this time in his earthly ministry, bear with me, this is important. Here's your answer. At least at this time in his earthly ministry, the divine nature of Christ that knows all because Jesus is God did not communicate divine knowledge or omniscience to the human nature of Christ. Sometimes it did. I thought Jesus knew things that no one should know. Sometimes the divine nature communicated divine knowledge to the human nature of Christ as God willed it. And sometimes it did not as God willed it. And at this time, from the text of Mark, we must conclude it was not the will of God, that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it was not the will of God to communicate the time of the return to the human nature of Jesus. That's what we have to conclude. And really, this shouldn't shock us if you're saying, well, that sounds weird. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 openly says this, Jesus increased in wisdom He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What nature is it talking about? Can God increase in wisdom? No. Only the human nature of Christ can increase in anything because God cannot change. The Bible openly says that Jesus increased in wisdom. And what do we know is part of wisdom? Knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge aren't exactly the same thing, but you can't be wise without knowledge. So Jesus, to increase in wisdom, increased in knowledge. That is, in his human nature, he had to learn. His human nature simply is not omniscient unless the divine nature reveals things to it, just like ours. This text in Mark, among other things, is simply an affirmation that Jesus is truly human. He is just like us in that regard. And with regard to his human nature, during the time of his humiliation on earth, he did not know all things. Now we confess that this is very mysterious. Do we not? Like it makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? Right. In one nature, Jesus knows all things because he's God, and in the other nature, he did not know all things because he's truly human. How? That, how? how? But they're in the same person. How? I don't know. I don't know. This is, a, this is, a, this is an impossible thing to understand. And listen, there's no, why is it so impossible? Because there's no analogy for it. Is there anything in nature like that? Where two completely distinct natures are bound together in one one person? No. If you try to find an analogy for it, I promise you'll fall into a heresy. Like with the Trinity, God's like water. No, He's not. That's modalism. That's a heresy. God's like a shamrock. No, that's partialism. That's a heresy. There is no analogy. For the hypostatic union of Christ, the union of the two natures. But nevertheless, we confess it to be true because this is the only way to understand the scriptures and all they affirm about our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, at this point. And so we humble ourselves before the mystery of the unity of natures in the one person of Jesus Christ, and we confess he is truly human as well as truly God. And we marvel at him brief piece of application. I know this is not the main theme of the sermon. We're going to get to the rest of the text, but I had to address this. The deep things of God are meant to draw us to worship, are they not? You think God just puts things in the book so that we can fill our heads? Nonsense. These things are meant to lead us to worship. So then, brothers and sisters, as we confess, behold the mystery and wonder of God made flesh. We can affirm it because God has revealed it, but we will never fully understand it. Not even in eternity will we fully understand it. Jesus is like none other. And hear me, the incarnation of the Son of God is the greatest miracle of all time. It is greater than his resurrection. His incarnation is the greatest miracle of all time. Behold your God and stand in awe at the fact that you cannot comprehend him. You cannot. You can affirm true things about him because he has told you things about himself, but you will not get to the bottom of him. He is incomprehensible, and that is one of the reasons we worship him, because he's not like us, but at the same time is like us because he's human. You see, we still can't, our words fail us, don't they? Behold your God. Humble yourself before him and worship. But even with all of that said, I don't want you to miss the point. I know I just took a 10 minute detour. Don't miss the point of Jesus' words here. And if it wasn't for the Arian heretics who deny the divinity of Christ, I wouldn't have had to do that, by the way. Christians would just read that and say, Mm-hmm, he's truly human, and we can move on. But because of heretics, I have to address these things. Don't miss the point here. The big point of Jesus' words, Jesus says that no one knows when he will come again. That's the big point here. That's the thrust of the discourse at this point. Nobody knows when Jesus will descend from heaven in glory and in judgment. Let this be a great reminder to us. Please hear me. We need to hear this, especially, I'm just keeping it real, in our area, because I know what most people's end times theology is. We need to hear this. Date setting eschatologies, date setting end times theology are an abomination in the eyes of God. Right? Remember that dude in Florida some years back? Jesus is coming back next year, and he tricked a bunch of people into selling all their property. Date-setting eschatologies are an abomination to God. Anyone who tells you Jesus is coming at such and such a time is a liar. They don't know. They're lying to you, and they're calling Jesus a liar in this text. Now, maybe they don't know that's what they're doing, but nevertheless, that's what they're doing. Right? And ignorance is no excuse. That's what they're doing. Maybe they don't, uh, again, maybe they don't see, but that's what they're doing. Jesus Christ has said that we cannot know when he will return. And so anything that even smells like date setting for his return is sin. It is attempting to pry into things that God has explicitly declared in his word are hidden from men. More than that is, to, it is to assume, consider this for a moment, when someone says Jesus is coming back in six months or whatever the nonsense is, It is to assume that sinful men can know something that the sinless man did not know. Like God's going to tell you something he didn't tell him. Get out of here. Get out of here with that. Brothers and sisters, that is blasphemy. Date setting at its root is blasphemous. We cannot know when Christ will come. But hear me on this. We can say Let's be clear. We can say that the Bible teaches that certain things must first take place before Christ returns. We can say that. That's not date setting. That's reading the entirety of the Bible. Let me give you some examples. The bringing in of the Jews into the church and the revivals throughout the world that must take place after the Jews come in. That's Romans 11. The revelation of the man of sin must take place before he comes. Right? That's 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, don't don't worry, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because the man of sin has to be revealed first. Revelation 20 teaches that a great apostasy that leads up right up to the return of Christ must first take place before he comes. And maybe a couple of other things too as we read the scriptures. Some things have to happen first. But we still don't know when he will come, do we? We still don't know. And we do not know how quickly God may make those things happen in history. And we do not know how long those things will last before Jesus comes again. In the words of a dear friend of mine, he's a, a Reformed Baptist pastor uh, in Cleveland. His name's Fred Pugh. He said, I think we need to have some humility when it comes to our eschatology. Amen. We don't know. We don't know. And even what we think we do know, except for affirming that he will come again, we still must confess, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on some of this stuff. We must have humility. Bottom line, we don't know. It is unknowable when Christ will come. And that, brothers and sisters, is why Jesus goes on to speak a parable and issues a command to all of his people throughout all ages until he comes. I'm going to read verses 33 through 37 again. Be on guard. In light of the unknowableness of his return, Jesus says this. Be on guard. Jesus says that his return can be compared. He gives a parable here. It can be compared to a man going on a journey. Who do you think the man is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the man. He is the master of the house, is he not? And what's his house? The church? The household of faith? Jesus is the master of the house. And when the master goes away, he puts his servants in charge and assigns them each work to do until he comes back. In particular, he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake and await his return. Now, when the master of the house goes away, he does not tell his servants when he will be back. He doesn't. He simply tells them, I will come back. Catch this. They don't know when he will return, but they know certainly that he will return. He will most definitely come again to his house and his servants, and they will have to give an account to him brothers and sisters, this is exactly what Jesus has done with his church, his house. He has ascended to heaven. He has ascended to heaven. He has gone away for a time, and he's told us that he will return. And he has simply said, I'm coming back someday. And we believe him, don't we? Let's take a moment and meditate on this. We believe him, don't we? It is our blessed hope, is it not? That's the language of scripture. That's the language of theologians all the way through church history. It is our blessed hope that he will one day return for his saints and to usher in glory. As Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. He will appear. We long for that day. If you don't, you don't understand the theology of the New Testament. Longing for the return of Christ is part of being a Christian. Longing for it. We long, do we not? We long to see the sky crack and the clouds part and our Lord descend from heaven in glory with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That's what we long for. We know it will happen. And we await it. We believe our master when he says, I will return. This should should stoke something in your heart. He's coming. He's coming again. Brothers and sisters, it it is a sure and certain truth that he will come again. Let me remind you this. I was reading this with my wife, and I could not get this out of my head. Remember the blessed words of the Lord in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let me read them to you. John 14, verses 1 through 3. This is glorious. This is from the lips of our Lord to his people. He says, I'm going away. If it were not true that I was going to prepare a place for you, would I have told you? He's saying to his disciples, am I a liar? Have you ever known me to lie? Brothers and sisters, surely he is not lying to us here. He's telling us, I would not lie to you. I would not tell you that I'm making a place for you and then not do it. I love you. I won't lie to you. And then he says something glorious that that just should make everyone who knows what a sinner they are just stop in their tracks and, and marvel at the grace of Christ. He says, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Who wants to be with me? Can you not say that about yourself, sinner? Who wants to be with me? But here Jesus says, like a husband who prepares a home for his bride and then comes to take her home with him. So also our Lord says that he will one day come again for his bride. Is this not refreshing to your soul? Is it not? I will come again for you. Brothers and sisters, he is no liar. And the glory of it all is that he says he wants us to be with him. He wants us to be with him. The Lord and God of all things desires that we be with him forever. And hear me on this about the desires of the resurrected and glorified Christ. He will not be denied his desire. He is resurrected and glorified. He is no longer, I love this about Jesus, in his exaltation, he is no longer denying himself anything. For 33 years, he denied himself everything for us and for our salvation. And now he denies himself nothing. And he says, I desire that you be with me, so I will come for you. Bank on that. Do you believe this? This is too glorious to not believe. Jesus has said it, and he is no liar. He will come again for his church. Now think of all the places. I just want to show you a few more places where God has promised this exact thing to us in his word. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord, that is Jesus, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Philippians Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from what? From heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angels, the apostles are, are, are staring up at Christ as he's ascended to heaven and the angels say, Men of Galilee, this is just funny. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And finally, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There are many other places we could read in scripture that affirm this glorious truth. It is all over the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, he will come again someday. And it will be a glorious day. And we long for this. We long for this. And hear me, whether we live to see it or not is irrelevant. This is nevertheless our great hope. It is our great joy. It is our great longing. It is fuel for the fires of our hearts. It is food for our weary souls. It is refreshment for our spirits to remember these things. When you look around at the world, you see how dark things are. What do you know? Not always. Won't always be this way. He's coming. He's coming again. Jesus will reign. He will come again. He will return in glory. And hear me. Please hear me on this. Even if you have an optimistic view of the long-term history of the world, if you're like me and you believe that the majority of the world will be Christian when Christ finally comes, this is still our great hope. Please hear me, my fellow post-millennialists, if there are any in the room. I think there's four of us. Hear me. (laughs) The expansion of the church and the glory of it is not our hope. It's not. It's not. Yeah, we talk about it a lot because the Bible talks about it a lot, but it is not our hope. We rejoice that Christ will have dominion in history, but we have an eye to something much greater. We long to see the king reigning for eternity with his redeemed people in a restored and recreated heaven and earth. We long for the day, not when the church has exploded throughout the world and and is having dominion by God's grace. We don't long for that. But we long for the day when sin and death are removed from this world completely. We long for the day when we receive the resurrection and glorification of our bodies. We long for the day when Christ will be vindicated before the eyes of all who have ever lived. That's what our focus is on. That is what we're waiting for ultimately. Please hear me. Don't lose sight of the great thing. The return of the king is what we're after. The final consummation of all things is what we're waiting for. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is what we yearn for. But brothers and sisters, we do not know when that day will come. The master of the house has only told us that the day will come. That's all we know. So then... If I could speak like Francis Schaeffer for a moment, how should we then live? How should we then live? What do we do with this information? What do we do with this? Well, know this. Jesus did not tell us that he will return for no reason. He didn't didn't give us this information so we could speculate on when. He says, don't do that because you don't know. Rather, his words here at the end of the discourse are meant to spur us on to a certain kind of living. A certain kind of living. He gave us these words so that we would live properly until He comes. That's why, throughout verses 33 through 37, He says continually, stay awake, keep awake, stay awake, stay awake. Brothers and sisters, we are to be watchful until He comes. Watchful on what? Watchful on the skies? No. Not watching the skies. He says, you don't know when. Watchful on ourselves. We are to be watchful of ourselves. We are to be watchful of ourselves and one another and how we live and conduct ourselves before he comes, or rather, until he comes. And hear me, if you die before he comes, that's fine. (laughs) Sorry, that's dark for you. If you die before Christ comes, that's fine. You did your duty. You remained watchful in light of his coming. That's what he's telling you to do. Be watchful in light of the fact that I'm going to return. Whether or not he returns in our lifetime doesn't matter. We are to do our duty. Whether we live to see it or not is irrelevant. Knowing that the day will come and that it will be unexpected is enough, according to Jesus, to have an effect on how we live now. Hear me on that. Knowing that one day the judgment of all mankind will come, when Christ comes, is is supposed to change how we live today. Whether or not we live to see it. It's supposed to change us now. Knowing that one day we will give an account to the master of the house is supposed to change how we live today. Knowing that one day the things of this world won't matter because Jesus has returned, knowing that is to change how we live today. As I've said before, we are to live in anticipation and expectation of the return of Christ. We are not to live as if he will never come. Rather, we are to live so that we are prepared to see him come. But more practically, what does it look like to stay awake? What does it look like to put legs on this command? Well, first know this. Jesus is talking about being spiritually awake. Some text, if you're a note taker. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, Romans thirteen eleven, Revelation 3, 3. There are other ones. There are multiple places where this being awake Is is a spiritual being awake, being spiritually alert, warm to Christ, fighting sin, busying yourself, working for Christ in obedience to him? But even beyond those verses, the parable Jesus gives in our text says that the master of the house, that is Jesus, put his servants in charge, each with his work. Every servant of the master, that is every Christian Everyone who believes on Christ has work to do that the Lord has given to him or her. I think we should take this all to mean that each one of us are to occupy ourselves with the work that the Master has given us to do. That's how we stay awake. Living in light of his impending return, staying awake, looks like walking in obedience to the job that he's given you. That's how you're ready for his appearing. That's how you, if you're a Christian, that's how you ready yourself for his appearing. And notice also in verse 35. That we, Christians, are to stay awake in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, in the morning. What does that mean? There are no breaks. There are no breaks for us. We are to constantly, at all times, be working for our master. There are no breaks for us. Now, I want to be clear. Yes, we have rest in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have rest from trying to save ourselves. We we, We don't believe that we're justified by our works at all. Yes, we have peace with God through Christ and rest with it, but there is nevertheless not one hour that we are permitted to live as if he is not coming again. Not one hour. We are servants of the Master, and he has commanded us, to quote the King James Version, Occupy until I come. That's a phrase that will stick with you. Jesus says, Occupy until I come. Work until I come. Not for your salvation, but for Christ. Work for him. For his glory. So then what is this work that he's given to us? Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to give you a list of things. I'm going to give you a list of things here. And, and they're broad, right? Because Jesus leaves n- no stone unturned with this command. Stay awake and do the work I gave you. What work? Everything that I told you to do. It's, it's all encompassing. I'm, I'm just going to go broad here. And I'm sure that you, co- you each can think more specifically and how how these things apply to your life, or or maybe things I'm not going to mention, right? And I recommend that you do that. It's the Lord's day. Spend some time meditating upon these things. How do I stay awake? What work has Christ given me to do? And know this, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think about this stuff and see how it applies to you. But here are some broad ideas. Broad things to consider: the work that the Lord Jesus has given His people to do until He comes. First, live with a Godward focus. I know that sounds generic, but if 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 we're intentional about this, this will change things. Let your actions and thoughts be directed by considering what pleases the Lord in all things. Not living your life with no thought to Him, but living your life with constant Godward focus. You say, "I want to be pleasing to the King." I want to see his smile when he comes. A second, kill sin. These are basic things. Kill the sin in your life by the grace of God. Strive for holiness. What does that look like? Listen, like put legs on this in your own life. Be intentional about rooting out sins, even subtle sins in your life. Why? Because the king will return and I will have to give an account to him. A third thing, evangelize. Tell people the gospel. Why? Because the king will return to judge the living and the dead, and they need to know Christ as I have come to know him. A fourth, love, care for, and serve God's people. Why? Because I want the master to see that I loved his house while he was away. A fifth, raise your children to know the Lord. Let me say it again. Don't just bring them here. Raise your children to know the Lord. Teach them the faith. Preach the gospel to them. Take them here. Take them to public worship. But do family worship. Do other things. Why? I want to see, or rather, I want the king to see that I was a good steward with the gift of children that he gave to me. A sixth thing. Work hard to provide for and take care of those under your authority and care. Men, I'm mainly talking to you. Work hard. Why? Because the king has given me authority. And I want him to see that I used it well and for his glory when he comes. A seventh, for all of us, think less of yourself and more of others. Just think of yourself less. Why? Because I want the king to see that I tried to be like him. Eighth, be committed to regular daily prayer. Why? Because I want the king to know that I love him and I look forward to his coming and I desire his guidance from heaven until he comes ninth love your spouse well love your spouse the master has given my spouse he's given me my spouse so that we can be a picture of his love for his bride and i want him to see when he comes that i tried to honor that picture well a tenth thing be generous to others in need Why? Because I want the master to see that I was a good steward with the material goods that he gave me and that I supported his house. I supported the ministry of his church and I cared for the poor like he did when he was here. An 11th and final thing, study the word of God so that you can know it better and so that you can help others to know the will of the king. Why? Because I want to be found obedient and faithful to whatever the master has said. What's the summary of all this? Live like a Christian. I'm serious. That's the summary of all this. Until he comes, live like a Christian. And know this, when he comes, you'll live like a Christian and it won't take you any effort anymore. But until he comes, put in the effort and live like a Christian. And, and let's be honest, these, all these things that I've given, a couple of your faces look confused. These seem like very ordinary things, don't they? And, and, and they are. To some extent they are but nevertheless these are the kinds of things that the Lord has called us to do these are examples of how we occupy until he comes this is how we stay awake we focus our energy on living for the master of the house until he comes in light of his return we are to live in such a way from day to day moment to moment that we would not be ashamed to meet him tomorrow if he were to come then I'm stepping away from my notes for a second. There's an illustration I read from The Life of John Wesley. Yeah, the, the Calvinist is going to quote or quote from John Wesley here for a moment. Buckle up. John Wesley. It was said someone asked him, "What would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow?" And he took his notebook out of his pocket and had all of his list of things and meetings he had to do tomorrow, and he read them out loud for the for the group and said, Those are the things that I would do if Jesus were coming back tomorrow. (laughs) That's good. That's how we should all be striving to live. That's how we should strive to live. So every day, so as to be unashamed if he were to come tomorrow. That's how we stay awake. But now we come to a question I always like to ask Why? Why? Why should we? What's the motivation here? Surely for the Christian, it's not fear. Anyone else raised like that? Like even to professing Christians? You better be ready for him to come back. And it's just straight up fear-based the entire time. Listen, I'm the last person to deny the wrath of God against the unbelieving. I'm talking to Christians right now. Why should we? Surely it's not fear. Surely it's not fear. You've been justified, haven't you? Through faith in Christ, your sins have been atoned for. It's not out of fear that you live this way until he comes You won't find, to my knowledge, any text of scripture that says that the believer is to be afraid whenever we think about the return of Christ. Not one. Brothers and sisters, our motivation for staying awake until he comes is love. It's love. It is. This Jesus who is coming back is the same Jesus who lived, died, and was raised for us. Surely, we long to see him. Surely, we long to see him. This Jesus who will return is the same Jesus who was crushed by God for our iniquities on a cross. It's the same Jesus who took the wrath of God as a substitute for sinners to turn God's wrath away from us. This Jesus who will return is the same Jesus who has given us his perfect obedience in the judgment. This Jesus who will return is the Jesus who loves us. Surely we long to meet the one who loved us and gave himself up for us all. And that's why we obey his command to stay awake until he comes. Because we earnestly desire him to come. And because we love him, we do not want to be found idle by our master. Hear me, hear me. You want to hear the heart of a Christian for a moment? Here it is. We cannot bear the thought of having no small offering to lay down at his feet. As worthless as it might be, because no gift we give to the king is ever worth anything, but we cannot bear the thought of saying I have nothing to lay before his feet when he comes though it's worthless I must have something to show him when he comes and so we stay awake and work as if we would meet him today now before I close let me return your attention to the glorious truth of our text one last time he is coming he is coming again He will return bodily just as he left. He will personally come. He's not sending someone else. He is coming. He will return in glory and vindication, no longer in weakness and humility. He will return in judgment as the reigning king to judge both the living and the dead, to give the believing everlasting life and the unbelieving and godless eternal damnation. He will return to save all who eagerly look for him. He will return to restore the earth just as it was in the beginning but it will be even more glorious now because the Redeemer for His own glory has saved a sinful people for Himself and we will praise Him forever. He will return to reign in perfection with His people for eternity. Brothers and sisters, He will return for us. And on that day, every wrong will be righted and every tear will be wiped away. And every trial and trouble and pain will be revealed to have been worth it. And everything will be made new. Glorious day. Rejoice in this. We do not know when. But we know for sure. Because our Lord is no liar. Now let me say this to the unbeliever that may be here. Or maybe the false professor. There is only one way for you to be ready. Jesus is addressing this text to people who profess faith in him. Here's how you're ready. Live for me until I come. To the unbeliever, there is only one way for you to be ready. Know this, you must repent and believe upon Christ. You must have your sins taken away by the Lamb of God. You must, have, you must be justified through faith in Christ, made righteous in the eyes of God. You must believe that Christ died on a cross as your sin-bearing substitute and that he was raised from the dead on your behalf to give you life. That is the only way for you to be prepared to meet The king. And hear me on this. All of us will meet him. Whether in death or at his return. We must believe upon him in order to be ready to meet him. But to the believer, let me end with this. Look forward to this day. Be glad. It's no day of fear for us. Rather, because of the mercy of Christ toward us who believe. It is a day of celebration. Because our king will be with us. We know not when, but we know for sure. May God grant each one of us to be prepared to meet the returning king. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this text of scripture that reminds us of glorious things. That Christ, as I have said dozens of times in this sermon, Christ will return I ask, God, that you would seal that simple truth to our hearts and make us live differently in light of it. You change us by the truth of your word, so I ask that by your spirit, you would take this truth and change us. Help us to occupy until our Lord comes. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.